inner lawyer will always tell you, you probably shouldn't do that. You haven't checked everything. You might not be doing it right. You could get in trouble. Everything that a lawyer is trained to do. And if you listen too much to that voice, you'll just never get anything done. So you need to listen to that other voice, that entrepreneur voice, the one that's like sitting on your other shoulder that's saying, just go already, just get it done, take the chance, take the risk. But it has to shout out the, the lawyer voice. Have that confidence, be able to shut down all the concern, know that you've done a good job, know that you've done your research, but at some point you've just gotta go. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? and how do they balance it all. Court is now in session. All rise. In this Of Counsel episode, we interview the editor and creator of Precedent Magazine, Melissa Kluger. As a lawyer who embraced her inner voice to do what she always wanted, Melissa tells us her story of becoming an entrepreneur. In a time where established and well-funded publications are struggling and failing, Melissa has managed to thrive and carve out a fan base among forward-thinking lawyers and law students. Over the past 10 years, those students and innovative lawyers have evolved with her and her magazine. As her first readers become partners and powerful influencers, Precedent has focused and highlighted their successes. As new lawyers shine, she recognizes them with her now highly reputable Precedent Setter Awards. As more students joined law school, she had launched her JD magazine specifically catered to them. As firms advance, her A-list announces it to a captured audience. Join us as Melissa discusses what it takes to succeed outside of law while still being true to her legal roots on this episode of Of Counsel. I'm here with Melissa Kluger. Melissa is the... Uh, editor-in-chief of Precedent Magazine, founder, uh, and many other things. You were called to the bar in 2002 after graduating from U of T and then articled at Castle Sprock and Blackwell with two of these months at Eddie Greenspan's office. Then you became a media lawyer in 2002 to 2005 with Brian McLeod Rogers. So I think we were sort of seen from an early stage that you're maybe transitioning out of law because now you run a very successful magazine and you're one of the few lawyers we've had on the podcast to date that is no longer in practice. So I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had here about how that story came to be, but I want to start with the law. How did it start? And then we'll get into how you got out of it. Can I start by saying that it's a real pleasure to be on your podcast as one of the few (laughs) non-practicing lawyers and among some pretty amazing people that you've had so far. So thank you. You're very welcome. It's been it's been really great to have people um, like you on it uh, as what I phrase as remarkable lawyers. And you are particularly remarkable because you're the only lawyer that <laughs> has a magazine that I'm aware of. So um, let's talk about that. But uh, I want to talk to you about um, 
your interest in media before you became a lawyer. It seems to me that you had that even before you went to law school. I think I might be the only person who went to law school to confirm that I really (laughs) wanted to be a journalist. Uh, It's true. I think uh, I've always had a specific interest in publishing. I don't think I realized it, that what it was was more the business of making publications and less... I loved writing and Mm -hmm. that was a part of it, but... Uh, for example, when I was at Queen's in for my undergraduate degree, I took a creative writing class. And in that class, I saw there was so much talent and there were so many people that were producing amazing writing. And I thought, my writing's okay, but what's too bad is there's nowhere to share mm. this writing. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a place to do that? And so I launched a magazine there called Ultraviolet. Which is, of course, a, a precursor to Ultravirase. Yes. And I believe you were published in Ultraviolet it's after possible. I, I, I left <laughs> I think that was an an early sign of wanting to do something beyond the writing. I wanted to bring people together and showcase their writing. And I think it was probably a good idea because that magazine is still on campus at Queens and I must have started it in 1996. So it's a pretty remarkable thing that it's still running and showed that there was a need. And that's something that I think I see a lot. uh, Something's missing and I and I want to fill that gap. But surely didn't go, like, obviously this was uh, something you were passionate about, and notwithstanding that, you went to law school. And I'm sure, you're, at least initially, you didn't think, I'm going to go to law school and then start up a magazine. You must have thought, I'm going to be a lawyer and start practicing. So wh- where were you, uh, where was your mindset when you went off to U of T Law? I was interested in doing more school. I liked being in university and wanted to continue studying. I was, at that time... I wasn't passionate that I was going to go to law school. I was thinking about three options. Law was one of them. The other two were journalism school or a master's in political theory. Mm-hmm. And a master's and a PhD, I, I guess, in political theory. And uh, the advice that helped me decide what to do came from my dad. He's a chemistry professor. And he said, if you don't go to journalism school, it's better that you become an expert in an area. And you can learn how to write about it later. Don't just go and learn how to write. And don't go to graduate school. Go if you want to. But he, as a scientist, has a very social academic group. Everybody does science. They do science together in a lab as a group. But in social sciences, you sit alone at a computer for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, so it's very isolating. And he said, you're a social person. You'll, you'll want to be among people. This will be very hard for you. And when you finish, even if you're the very best political theorist, there will be very few jobs for you. Why don't you go to law school? You'll still have an opportunity to learn and think. And when you're done, worst case, you become a lawyer. (laughs) But you weren't going to accept that worst case. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think he knew he was giving me the instructions that I would go to law school, quit my job, and start a magazine for lawyers. But in a way, that's exactly what his advice led me to. Well, at least initially, you're very much a lawyer because you're off to Bay Street. And then super cool thing is you actually got to do a secondment with Eddie Greenspan. So tell me about that experience, your articles, and in particular, I'm sure everyone's interested in knowing your time with uh, the late Eddie Greenspan. The whole articling year was very interesting and probably confirmed for me that law wasn't really what I wanted to do. Uh, My first day of articling was September 11th, like the September 11th, and I was in the Scotia Plaza at Castles, Brock and Blackwell being trained in in, uh, quick law. And our building got evacuated in the middle of it. So that was my very first day of articling. Needless to say, there wasn't a ton of work that happened right after that. I had gone to Castles because I thought I wanted to be an entertainment law lawyer. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
there was very little entertainment law to be done in those early days. And I was only articling's 10 months, and eight of them were there, and then two of them were at Eddie Greenspan's office. So it was a very short time and a very, very strange time to be articling, I would say. Uh, Eddie Greenspan's office was amazing. Right. I have to say, though, I'm really surprised because people, at least in my experience, obviously my uh, I have bias to this, but people who dabble in criminal law and do yes. these types of secondments seem to never return. Uh, they often oh. will, you know, get into criminal law and say, this is all I can do because it's very exciting. And I'm sure you saw some great cases. But for me, that kind of excitement was not <laughs> exciting at all to me. I can remember being in court and uh, I was supposed to go put a matter over for a case I didn't know really anything about. And right. I had to say, my client, I have to put the matter over because my client is out of the country. And the JP said, well, where, what country has your client gone to? And I didn't know the answer. And so the JP had made me go out. I had, a, had to go to the payphone and call <laughs> Eddie Greenspan's office to be like, where's the client? I don't know where the client is. And for me, just not being, pre- not being prepared, not knowing uh, I found pretty, I always found that kind of stressful. Even Eddie knew that this wasn't, uh, this wasn't for me. Uh, he sat me down at the end of my time there and I was sort of asking him for career advice and what I should do. And I mean, he was a busy man. I was only there for two months and yet I'd made enough of, impre- of an impression on him that he was able to say to me, Melissa, you love something other than law. And he was just bang on about that. And I I think about that a lot, about how he saw in me something that wasn't being a lawyer. And he tried to give me assignments that really suited that. He'd say, Melissa, I have to write the foreword to this book of poetry. Hmm. Can you summarize these poems for me so I can write that? And of course, it's very hard to summarize a book of poems. But uh, he was was trying to give me work that would would suit me best. Isn't that cool that Sorry, such an insightful man was able to see right through you. He saw right through me. I guess years of cross-examining <laughs> people to death will uh, do that. Well, and you, I but. probably didn't, the, the way you're saying most people would come to that office and then would never want to leave, it was probably surprising to him that I was ready to go. I, it was just, I didn't want to be, the, I didn't want to be doing that kind of work at all. So maybe it was obvious. I wasn't a slacker. I did the work. But. Right. But it's great that you took that in a way that was positive because a lot of people would maybe take it the wrong way and say, I don't want to be a lawyer, I quit. Uh, I just want to get out of law altogether. But you saw that as a springboard of something far greater. Um, just backing up a little bit, though, because uh, we glossed over uh, your time at U of T Law. And during that time, you started a very successful publication, Ultra Vires, which also is still around, right? It's still around, Are yes. you still active in that? I'm not still active. Sometimes I actually find it amusing these days. I'll try and sell an advertisement to a law firm in my student magazine, President JD, and the firm will say, we've already booked our advertising. We're spending our ad dollars with ultravires. And I just kick myself, like my past self (laughs) has outdone my future self. How did that get started, the ultravires? Kind of a similar story to the creative writing magazine. I got to law school. I thought, There were so many interesting people there. So much was going on. It was also a very political time. Tuition was rising. There was a lot of tension just within the faculty itself. And I thought, I need a place to share opinions. I couldn't believe that there wasn't a student paper at the law school. And again, it was sort of, I sort of felt, I like law, but I think it's most most important to spend my time here helping to build community and helping uh, lawyers, these law students talk to each other and share what they care about. And not all serious. 
Mm-hmm. Lawyers are the law students were funny and uh, wanted to support one another and share good things, like when they won a moot competition or something more lighthearted as well. But it was also a place to share political thoughts as well. Yeah, it's really interesting because you know what people I think people have an idea of lawyers that they're all very serious and all we do all day is put our nose in books and write facta and there's this whole other side to lawyers a lot of people are you know um high achievers they you know we've interviewed a lot of people who are accomplished musicians uh and really have done a lot more and what i think is really um special about your magazines uh and in particular um now precedent is you've managed to capture that texture of lawyers and i want to return to that but i I've, i want to know a little bit more of the story as to how that came to be so how did you decide or maybe even get the courage to say i've had enough um even though i'm practicing in media a lot at the time enough to say i'm actually going to make a go at this i think because i was always interested in journalism and was sort of trying to find a way to make law fit in with my interest in journalism mm-hmm. Media law seemed like a good place to work as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so when I finished my articles, I started networking with many different people to figure out where I might go and, and what kind of law might suit me and my interests. And Eddie was one of the people actually who did introduce me to Brian McLeod Rogers, who I did go and work with, who is a, a media lawyer who specialized in advising journalists, filmmakers, and newspapers. So here you are, like you're kind of doing exactly what the law could deliver as far as media, because I, you know, I assume that this is kind of the height of the game of media law. Right. And notwithstanding that, you thought, I'm sure it was interesting, but notwithstanding that, you still decided to take it that one step further. And I think I really confirmed for myself in that role that what I wanted to be was the journalist and not the lawyer working for the journalist. Mm-hmm. I Partly because... The, the world of journalism seemed more exciting to me. And also because when you're doing media law, which is a lot of libel work primarily, you're dealing with journalists when they're kind of at their worst. It's, it's a terrible moment when a journalist needs a lawyer and is being sued. Mm-hmm. And it was usually sad. It wasn't the excitement of working in a newsroom or putting together an amazing magazine. You were dealing with the saddest, lowest moments in a journalist's career, and even then, not even playing a very big role in it. So I found the law itself, it's almost like it didn't matter what area of law I was going to do. Most of the time, the work was very similar, and it was, I found, fairly lonely and not particularly creative. Right. It never felt like quite the right fit for me. I could do the work, but it wasn't what I was best at. Right. And I think perhaps that's um, a struggle a lot of lawyers have where conceptually they know their passion might be elsewhere. But do you think that it's hard to, like looking back, how did you get the courage to say, I'm just going to drop law because here you've invested all this time and effort and all these connections and you're just going to start basically what you've always wanted to do. And I'm sure a lot of lawyers are in that position now even, but how do you make that next step and be confident that it's going to work? I guess there's two parts to that answer. Uh, The first part is I saw what was missing. I started to see the magazines that were out there for lawyers coming across my desk and I was glad that they were there. I want every magazine to thrive and succeed, but I didn't feel like any of the magazines that were already out in the market spoke to me as a lawyer in my very early years of practice. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had made a newspaper that my peers had enjoyed. It wasn't 
top-notch journalism. It wasn't the best there could be, but I was on to something that wasn't out there for lawyers, and I kind of missed my student paper and wished there was something like that for me as a lawyer. So I really was watching that and noticing what was missing and wishing for it. So it made it a little bit easier to make a leap because I I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is amazing about law that I'm not sure everybody appreciates is we have some pretty good fallback plans as lawyers. So if you don't want to practice as a full-time lawyer at a firm, you can do something like I did, like document review. So I went and got a document review gig where I did work that required a high skill level and my training, but didn't require any hours outside of the office. And I actually got to make my own hours. So when I was first thinking about the business, I worked a lot. As I got closer to the launch of the business, I reduced my hours and it was entirely flexible. I'm not sure if every document review job is exactly the same and has that much flexibility. But for me, I found something that paid my bills while I was building my dream and coming up with the plan for that. And most people in their careers, if you're going to leave it, you don't have another lucrative way to kind of keep doing it on the side while you work on your, I guess, your side hustle. I'm grateful that law gave me skills that I could use in a lot of different ways. And some of them were for something as as flexible as document review that would allow me to also have the time to build the magazine. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, uh, you're a little bit ahead of your time because in this day and age, it seems like there's a lot of side hustle that's going on, not just for lawyers, but for everybody. Right. And uh, that's an interesting insight because I've never really thought of it that way of lawyers having this fallback that is there in a way that is a lot safer than other entrepreneurs Absolutely. who are in the same position. So tell me about uh, the launch of Precedent. Um, you launched in 2007, and uh, you know I've I've read every uh, issue that's come out, and I've glad I've loved to them hear eight. it. Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. uh, since it launched, and I love it, and so do many others. But for listeners who aren't familiar with the magazine, uh, tell us about how it started and what was kind of the at least at that time, what was the purpose behind it? Precedent is a, I would describe it as a career and lifestyle magazine for lawyers and specifically lawyers in Toronto. It's very, very niche and very local. Hmm. We send the magazine free to every lawyer in Toronto, which is about 15,000 lawyers every issue. It comes out once a quarter, so it's four times a year. And we also publish a student magazine that comes out once a year called Precedent JD. I sort of sometimes describe the magazine as Toronto Life for Lawyers. Mm. So we, similar to Toronto Life, we would uh, include pictures of lawyers at parties. Uh, We profile, we have a lot of fun lifestyle content. So we'll profile a lawyer with an interesting house or in every issue we have a back page story about a lawyer with an interesting hobby. Uh, But in the middle of the magazine, we use it to sometimes push the envelope on issues that I think are important in the profession. I'd say gently push the envelope, but still push it a little bit and and encourage people to think about things that matter to us and kind of how to improve the profession and make it better. I think one of the things that was really important to me when I was starting the magazine was that it speak to me and that it represent lawyers in a really different way than we'd seen before. I want the covers of the magazine and the lawyers we profile to be outstanding, up-and-coming lawyers, people you haven't heard about before, but people who really represent the very best of the profession. It's a magazine that's just for lawyers, but I want it to be a magazine that if someone who wasn't a lawyer saw it, they would 
maybe rethink any negative stereotypes they have about lawyers and and see law in a really positive and amazing light and to meet some really amazing lawyers that they wouldn't know about otherwise. And at the time, obviously, this didn't exist in the market. So you saw the opening and you decided to go for it. Like, how did you even go about, you know, if you're looking at this in a broader entrepreneurial spirit, like let's say someone else is looking at it and saying, I want to do maybe not publishing, but something else. How did you even go about the resources and finding a publisher or finding the staff that you needed to do it? I planned and thought about it for a couple of years. So it wasn't like I just knew right away exactly how it was, how it was going to get done. I had the experience of some publishing in my, in my past and some sense of the audience that I wanted to speak to. I was lucky enough that Ryerson had launched a course just that year, a weekend-long course called How to Start a Magazine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when I knew I had to start a magazine because that two-day course just lit me up. I was so... Every topic, even if it was about Canada Post, Mm -hmm. just delighted me in a way that I, I don't think anything had before that I had been learning. So... There, was, there were formal resources like that, and then there was a lot of meeting with people and learning things every which way I could from whoever was going to give me some time to share what they knew about making magazines or running a business. So it's been around now for 11 years? Yes. 11 years, and have obviously the magazine has changed, but, but how so? Like When you look back at some of those first issues, I'm sure you do from time to time, mm-hmm. do you see a change in philosophy, structure? What are some of the biggest things that you see now that are different? I'd say one of the big changes is who we're speaking to. Mm-hmm. When I first started it, I was really thinking about the most junior lawyer, someone who was trying to make that transition from a student to a young professional, that there was so much that people don't know. They, they might have a lot of resources on how to practice law, but they don't know what to wear or what to order in a restaurant or what new couch to buy for their house. They just don't know how to yet be the grown-up professional. So right. a lot of the magazine was going to be that kind of advice. And I always sort of had in my mind this lawyer who was one year ahead of me, sort of like, what would she want in the magazine? Mm. And, and, and what would what would be the right content for her? And uh, now it's 11 years later and she's the managing partner of Stockwood. <laughs> and uh, that's still my audience, right? So they've grown up right. with precedent over those 11 years. So it's not just first year, second year lawyers. Now it's much more a magazine for t- Toronto lawyers. We still try and seek out the rising stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are other magazines for some of the more established lawyers. But uh, that's one of our goals. But you've also, um, in the process of precedent growing up, precedent also had another junior associate come through, so to speak, right? With the launch of precedent JD. Sure. uh, Where now you've essentially gone back to that market or tried to integrate the two. So tell me about that. That's right. We, I guess originally it was sort of all lumped together. Oh, it's a magazine for young lawyers and it's a magazine for law students. And we used to every fall put a supplement in our lawyer magazine that was a student supplement. And eventually the student supplement got so big, it kind of had a life of its own. So, and because there was a bit of confusion, is this a lawyer magazine? Is it a law magazine, a law student magazine? We separated them so that there would be specific content just for law students and specific content for lawyers. And I found we talked to, to lawyers and law students in a very different way, uh, mainly because a law student has a very 
specific calendar and every year new law students need the same information and the same advice about interviews and right. law firms and clubs to join. And so using social media, we can reshare a lot of the same stories that we've already written in previous years that are relevant to an entirely new group of students. Whereas mm -hmm. with precedent, we have to constantly be finding new stories. We can't say, hey, here's that same lawyer we wrote about last year again. So it's a little bit different and it's been nice to separate them out. So over that time, you've obviously adapted to changes within uh, the demands of the market, going back to the student issue with um, the JD magazine. But along that path, there must have been a lot of pressures forcing you as a publication to adapt. Like how has publishing changed and what have you done to try and move with that trend? In a way, everything is different. Mm -hmm. When I started the magazine in 2007, the, we had not yet been hit by a global recession and print publication was still a thing. The internet hadn't overtaken publishing in the same way that it has now or it even did two or three years later. So right. in hindsight, it was a pretty unusual time to start a magazine, but I think it was good. I didn't know all the things that were coming. So, in, and actually I was thinking about it today. The other thing that's crazy to think about in 2007, social media was basically non-existent. Right. I don't think I was on Facebook. I remember reading an article about Twitter and how it may or may not take off. Definitely no Instagram. And I don't think there was, I don't know when LinkedIn started, but it wasn't something that I was using either. So to think about how dramatically the way I share my content and, and what I have to do once I make a magazine, it's not just to put it on a website. There's so much, there's so much more to do. So the social media side of it is, is kind of remarkable as I think back. In fact, we were saying, well, how did people know to even come to the website if there was no social media? It's hard to even imagine the world without it now. Right. But we, what was really interesting to watch this as it unfolded is you were one of the few publications that quickly adopted this technology and what we saw particularly in trade magazines and the legal profession is this unwillingness to allow for social media to be integrated and frankly I still see that to this day where there's this reluctance to share content or reluctance to embrace social media but do you think that perhaps your leanness as a publication give you a bit of an edge there in allowing you to do that? I think it does. I mean, in some ways, it seems crazy to start a magazine at the uh, dawn of a recession and the rise of the internet. But at the same time, I didn't have a way that it had always been done. Right. I had to be always thinking about how I was going to come up with new ideas because I was starting from nothing. And so I think that made me more nimble and able to see opportunity and adapt to it. And one of the, one of the things I'm most proud of in that regard is our uh, our site, The Precedent A-List, which is a site for career announcements and job opportunities for lawyers. There's nothing else like it, and it's not at all the same as publishing a magazine, but it's still sharing content. In this case, firms, they have their own accounts, and they share the news that's going on at their firms, whether it's a job ad or an announcement for a new associate, a lateral hire, or someone who just made partner. And it's another way to share content that really takes advantage of social media and just the new ways that people are sharing their news. And it's been very rewarding and great to see it grow. And it, it makes me feel like, it gives me the confidence to know that I am innovating. My, my magazine will continue and these new ideas that grow out of being part of the community will help sustain the magazine and help grow the business. Right. Because I was going to ask you the question, you know, what advice would you you Melissa Kluger 2018, give Melissa Kluger 2007. But 
in a way, what you're describing almost seems like not having a roadmap <laughs> almost helped you because you were just kind of reacting issue to issue to what's going on. Uh, but is there maybe something you would have told yourself back in 2007? I think it was a good lesson to be able to learn to roll with things since I'm not known to be particularly good at just rolling with it. Mm-hmm. I, I think advice that I would have given to myself then that probably is valuable to lawyers thinking about doing something else is to learn to listen to your inner entrepreneur and not just your inner lawyer. Mm -hmm. Because the inner lawyer will always tell you, you probably shouldn't do that. That you haven't checked everything, you might not be doing it right, you could get in trouble, everything that a lawyer is trained to do. And if you listen too much to that voice, you'll just never get anything done. And so you need to listen to that other voice, that entrepreneur voice, the one that's like sitting on your other shoulder that's saying, just go already, just get it done, take the chance, take the risk. But it has to shout out the the lawyer voice. So I think I would say, uh, have that confidence, be able to shut down all the concern, know that you've done a good job, know that you've done your research, but at some point you've just got to go. What is uh, something that you look back and you're particularly proud of? Like, I'll ask you first about articles. Is there one or two that stands out in your mind that uh, is particularly memorable? And that can be positive or negative. Is there something that um, you think of a lot? I'm going to start with a an article that is memorable, but not really my favorite. Uh, we wrote a story recently on President JD. We try and keep up on kind of relating relevant news in the world to things that might relate to law students. We'd heard recently about Kim Campbell expressing her opinion on whether or not women can show their shoulders in a professional environment. And it had caused quite a bit of commotion that her advice was that they really can't. They should wear suits and cover their shoulders. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. That's a that's an issue in law firms. They're conservative environments. I sure. wonder these days, law students should know whether or not women at law firms can show their shoulders at work, which seems absurd even that I'm saying that that was a question. But at least there's, um, obviously there's, there's opinions about it that need to be at least discussed. Yes. So we assigned a journalist to write a little story, interview two people with slightly different opinions and like two lawyers and an expert, put together a little story, put it up online. And usually that's, we share our stories. We had some feedback, but this just turned into a storm. The the law students in particular did not like the story. And usually I'm used to writing stories that everybody likes. Like usually we're writing great stories about amazing lawyers that are inspiring. But uh, lawyers, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a dilemma, especially with student, the student magazine that we struggle with often. We want to give students really good advice. We want to tell them what to wear at the office to succeed. But the answers aren't always what they want to hear or even what I want to tell them. But if I'm giving advice to a law student about what they should wear to an interview or their first week on the job, it's pretty conservative. Right. And, and you hear it again and again that that's the case. We, we just interviewed someone who said she wore a blue shirt under her blazer, her black blazer at an interview, and she stuck out like a sore thumb because her shirt was bright blue. And so you want to tell students, Bring your full self to work. Wear whatever color you want. Have piercings. Do your hair however. But we also want them to get the job in an incredibly conservative environment. So the story 
did lean towards being pretty conservative. And there was a lawyer who said, you should dress the part and you should be conservative if you want to be taken seriously. We had another woman who said, it depends on who your client is. And if you're going to a tech company, you don't have to dress as formally. But if you want to be taken seriously around a boardroom table, put on your blazer. But the students, I can just remember that one comment on Facebook that a student put on, she wrote, my eyes can't roll any further back in my head. And for me, we don't get that kind of feedback. We don't get sort of people slamming us. And, and at the same time, if I had the story to do again, I would still have to tell students that they have to dress pretty conservatively at the office. So it, it kind of struck at a lot of issues like uh, sexism, racism, uh, just general conservatism in the law firm culture that we couldn't address in that story, but definitely is there to be talked about further. Right. But I mean, what's interesting about that is that otherwise, I mean, this conflict, uh, this tension exists independent of your magazine, right? And what your article did here is bring that to light so that these discussions perhaps can be had in a way that's actually, I think, uh, looking at it from the outside, uh, far more productive because you simply can't have that discussion in an interview room, but the dialogue on both sides can now at least be had. And perhaps that's the important part of this type of journalism is that it's a type of discussion without being the one forcing or facing the consequent in the moment. And I I think that's something that's really important for me about precedent is that we start a lot of discussions. We don't, we don't take a lot of hard stands on issues and we don't, that's not really our goal, but we do really want to start conversation. I think the difference with this story is we started a conversation, but they were mad at us. And usually they're just going to take what we wrote and discuss it amongst themselves. But it it came back to as though precedent was, precedent JD had somehow had the opinion as opposed to sharing an opinion that they should know about. So it just got confusing. Yeah, no, I I could definitely see that. But um, I I guess part of what uh, I think a lot of people really like about your magazine is that because uh, law is such a subdued and conservative culture that a lot of these issues that are very much present day to day are simply aren't discussed. And at least uh, you're equipping lawyers, even if they disagree with your advice, at least equipping them with the understanding that this is coming and you have to decide how you want to deal with it. So obviously that one was memorable. Probably still uh, some retweets going on as a result. But actually that that, um, raises another question that I have for you. Do you find that obviously social media has propagated this, right? This became a a point of discussion that when Precedent was first launched in 2007, it just simply would have been obviously people talking about it at work, but you wouldn't have been that involved in that discussion. Do you see that as a good thing that you can now engage or at least understand what your audience is thinking about it? I would say yes, except that lawyers don't typically engage. I don't find that they use social media nearly as much as anyone else. And in fact, this one occasion where I feel sensitive because people had an opinion, those were law students and not lawyers. I guess most of the time when I'm writing for lawyers, they don't, they, they share their opinion kind of the way they used to, uh, among their friends and right. with their colleagues. But it's very rare for us to see someone make a strong statement about one of our stories on social media or to speak out about it in any public way. I think lawyers are still very, very cautious and conservative about what they're going to share publicly and sharing their opinions in particular. 
Isn't that interesting? Because the irony here is that um, that type of culture where we don't discuss things as lawyers is the exact reason for the controversy here that these sorts of conversations about why can't I wear uh, something that doesn't have sleeves um, just simply aren't discussed on Bay Street. So anyway, credit to you for that. Because <laughs> I think, uh, because, you know, from the other side of things, even if the lawyers themselves aren't engaging in the discussion, I don't think that discussion can be ignored. And at least it's something that perhaps was overlooked by partners and maybe thought that this just didn't matter and we're going to do it our way. But seeing that pushback might change some policies. Um, so what about a different type of article? Is there anything else that is a real feel-good article that you're particularly yeah, proud of? Yeah, I have a couple of other stories that I'm, I'm really proud of. One is, was, is a whole package of stories. It's our Precedent Setter Awards. We just had our awards reception last night to congratulate the latest winners of, the, of this year's awards. And uh, we, we select every year now in their ninth year of these awards, we select six outstanding lawyers in their first 10 years of practice. And kind of make them rock stars. Right. We write uh, really short but amazing profiles about them, and we take incredible photos with a hair and makeup person on set and lots of people involved in the photo shoot day to deliver photos that are just as good as you'd see in any consumer magazine that lawyers are also reading. So we, we really make the lawyers amazing. And these aren't lawyers that you've usually ever heard of before or lawyers that you've seen on the cover of any other magazine. These are new stars that, that we're discovering and promoting. And uh, it's a chance to show the very best of the profession and to introduce new people. So I'm always incredibly proud of how it all comes together, because it's a ton of work to to select them and then profile them and throw a party for them. Uh, but it, it's definitely one of the highlights of my year every year. How long has the President uh, Setter Awards been around? This was the ninth year. So next year will be year 10 of the President Setter Awards. And I know within the legal community, that's something that a lot of people really look forward to and something, you know, last night I was there as well <laughs> with you. And it's amazing to see all these people from Bay Street, a lot of them former precedent award setters themselves, right. but but a lot of people who you look and you think, why is that person here who's the, like this titan of litigation or something? But there's an immense sense of pride uh, among Bay Street to have someone awarded in this way because it's not just Bay Street too. It's also pooling from everyone, right? Right, right. it can uh, be any kind of lawyer. So is it is it uh, a little bit surreal now to see like seven years ago these people grown up, so to speak, to now become these partners and, and people going to the Supreme Court. I mean, some of them already had, but right. to see the evolution of these precedents that are awards. I don't think it's surreal. I feel like they're my friends. Like they, these people that I've identified as outstanding lawyers have grown up kind of like with all my readers, like have grown up with the magazine. And so the ones that come back every year to celebrate are supporters of the magazine, supporters of future lawyers who are winning the awards and just has an amazing supportive vibe to it. And, and I'm, I'm always just happy for everybody's success. Well, you should be very proud of that. I think that's Thank a you. really um, great thing to do. And uh, I think it's also great that it, much like everything in your magazine, it's not the typical sort of cookie cutter of the top whatever of whatever. It's very much picking, looking at law in a far broader sense in a way that's outside of the standard categories of who did the latest big merger and more about ancillary issues that are alive to the issue. So anyway, it's a great party. So Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it was a lot of fun last night. What do you think um, is the most stressful part of running this publication? I guess the most stressful part of running precedent would be the same as any business. It's mm. making the money to 
be able to do what you want to be doing and running your business how you want. So there are deadlines related to making the magazine itself, but we're, we're very used to those deadlines. And I have, I have a team of people that I work with who help me meet those deadlines and, and actually are much more in charge of them than I am. Shout out to Daniel Fish, senior editor. <laughs> um, thank you. A big part of my job is the sales. Uh, I quickly learned that there are lots of people who can write. Mm-hmm. There's not as many people who can sell my dream of a magazine for lawyers. And so I, it, was a good, it was a good realization for me that there are other people who can write better than I can, edit better, and that if I'm able to delegate that and, and give that to other people, I still play a big role, but to give a lot of that work to other people, then I can focus more on the areas that really only I can do. So what I'm getting at here is it seems like there's a lot of pressures and lawyers face this in general, right? There's one of the biggest issues that, that lawyers are facing often is mental health and the, the pressures that can be placed upon lawyers. Have you ever tried to embrace that in your magazine and dealing with that and, and how one might be able to navigate? And if so, what sort of effect do you think that had on the profession? Yeah, actually, our mental health issue is another one of the one of our stories that I'm most proud of that we've done at Precedent that I think has been most worthwhile. Daniel, our senior editor, found a number of lawyers who were willing to come forward and speak very candidly about their own struggles with mental health. And uh, they were lawyers who also had positive ideas of how the profession could change for the better. So uh, we published an amazing story uh, and photographed the lawyers. And I think the thing that I, like I'd said before, we a lot about precedent is kicking off conversations, getting the profession to talk about things. And that was a big goal for this was that we, that we get people talking more about mental health. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really interesting at our precedent center awards last night, we invited the people who had been featured in the mental health story to the event and to see those, a couple of the women who came interacting and connecting with the people at the event and just seeing how, far they've come in sharing their stories and connecting with people and how supportive the profession has been and how it's leading to already like direct reforms and changes in the profession. And so precedent kicked that off and the lawyers have taken it and run with it. And that that's very satisfying. If we could do that all the time, it would be amazing. So um, what about you? How do you achieve your own balance in life? How do you try and manage the pressures of running such a I guess, extensive publication and always having to meet deadlines and ensuring that the content's good. I mean, I imagine that that has its own pressures. So what do you do to relax or get away from it all? Well, I think the most important thing is that I have amazing people who work with me. So I'm not making, sometimes people say, oh, do you run that magazine out of your basement? (laughs) How do you think I'm possibly running that magazine out of my basement? But I have an amazing office and amazing staff. And uh, there's there are the people who work in the office. We have our senior editor, Daniel, and we also have uh, two people working in marketing and editorial intern and uh, accounting department and art director and tons of freelancers and photographers who work on every issue when, when we need their help. And so it's not just me making a magazine. And, and because I have so many talented people who can do so many of the jobs better than I can, mm-hmm. I'm able to delegate in a way that I've never had before and uh, feel confident that the people that I'm working with will do a really incredible job. So I can't be all places at once and they can help me get so much done that I'm able to achieve a lot of balance that way. One of the traits uh, that you obviously possess to be able to achieve that is 
um, good delegation skills, good managerial skills. What advice would you give to lawyers or even lawyers who are leaving like you to try and do that? Because The reason I ask is because in my experience, and I include myself in this, is it's hard for lawyers to let go because we right. often want to control everything. What would you say to someone who maybe needs some help right. in delegating? I think my kid makes it possible <laughs> to want to be delegating because I don't have as much time as I did when I first started the magazine. So when you realize there are other things that you really want to be spending your time on, you figure out a way to to make that happen. So for example, on Fridays, I try not to go to the office. I try to make that my big picture work from home day. Um, that day includes going to the gym and it also includes bringing my daughter home from lunch, which she thinks is amazing and just feels incredibly special. It's only an hour, but it's an hour I'm able to build into, into my day that is really special for both of us. So I think it's learning to figure out uh, what matters and, and how to make it happen. I want to ask you another question about lawyers having to deal with media because from time to time particularly uh, if you're a litigator uh, you're approached by media to ask to comment on a case that you may be handling or even just provide an opinion what advice would you give lawyers who are confronted with this like what is it that you're looking for as a story because I think a lot of lawyers look at media as being up to something that they want right. to try it's sort of a gotcha moment that right. you're going to get fired or on the front page of the news. But is there a balance that can be struck? I would definitely say to lawyers that for the most part, I don't think it's a gotcha. No one's looking for a real gotcha moment. Or if they are, it's probably not from the lawyer. They're asking for advice on how to understand a case or how to explain something to their audience. I guess it's it's more. It's a little bit different for precedent. What someone might be pitching or saying to me and and my team versus speaking to the media more broadly. But I think I can. I think I can address both in terms of coming to precedent and pitching an idea or or how to how to speak to us when we call. I think lawyers would be surprised to know that almost no one pitches us. That it's very rare for someone to reach out and say, hey, I have a story idea or you should write about me and here's why. And on the rare occasion when it happens, we really pay attention. And often those people end up being profiled in the magazine. So if, if, you, ha if you want to be profiled or you want to be quoted, you want to be a source, it's important to figure out who the right person is to reach out to, whether it's my magazine or any other, and then to explain why you're the right person and who you are and to show that you you know who you're talking to. So if someone put, brings me a pitch and it shows they've, they understand precedent, they know the kinds of stories we write about, they know what kinds of lawyers we're looking for and what kind of stories we want to tell, if they can make a case for themselves or someone they're contacting me on behalf of, then that's great. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to find amazing lawyers. So if you can tell me about one, that's incredible. So uh, I'd say to lawyers, don't hesitate to reach out and, and sell yourself. That's that's a great idea. What's the worst that will happen? Someone will say no, or they won't get back to you. Do you think that applies to other media as well? Like, like saying like there's a breaking story in the star on Bill C-75. I think a lot of lawyers might just think, well, I know a lot about it, but why would I, why would they quote me? I think it's similar. I think that you shouldn't hesitate to introduce yourself to any journalist who you think would be someone you could you could help. I, I, journalists are looking for sources and want to hear from people. I think the more general advice I would give if lawyers are speaking to media is 
don't be afraid. It's almost that same lawyer voice that might keep you from starting a business mm-hmm. also might keep you from being a particularly good source. So if you're so worried that you might say the wrong thing or that you might get caught in saying something wrong, or revealing too much, you're kind of a bad source. No one, if you're so hesitant and too nervous, it, you're not very interesting. So mm-hmm. uh, don't be afraid because you're well-trained. You know what you can and can't say. Tell an interesting story. Give a little bit of... Uh, color. And and then you're going to be a great source for that journalist who's going to want to come back to you. But um, yeah, I guess my advice would be just don't be boring and and it'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) What do you see as some of the uh, similarities and differences between law and uh, your industry and publication? I mean, we've already mentioned one, and I think that's a really important insight and the reluctance, for example, to use social media and law. I mean, yes, right. they do it. Uh, lawyers will do it, but often in a very bland, boring kind of way. <laughs> right. uh, whereas media is obviously the whole point is to get people engaged in reading their stories. Um, but are there other areas that you think that should be discussed that that are kind of different or, or, or um, very similar that would not be so obvious? Because I'm always straddling these two industries, law and media, I do feel like I, I am comparing two industries that don't really get compared that often. And one thing that I do want to give credit to law for that might be surprising is law is doing well on diversity, which might sound strange because I think in law we give ourselves a pretty hard time that law is too white, it's still too male-dominated, it's not diverse, it's not welcoming, it doesn't include people, it doesn't represent the actual population. And that's true. But at the same time, lawyers are thinking about it all the time. It's it, at the Preston Center Awards last night, it was talked about among different people that I that I had the opportunity to catch up with. It it's on everyone's mind. There are so many seminars. There's so many professionals dedicated to learning how to make it better. There's work at the law schools being done in high schools. I feel like the, the profession hasn't got it figured out, but they are. we are aware that it's a problem and we are trying to fix it. And on the other side, in media, where I think the arguments are just as strong, if not stronger, that it be diverse, I don't see the same discussions. I go to all the media conferences I can, all the magazine-focused conferences. And only this year, for the first time at the Canadian conference I was at, was there any discussion of diversity. And uh, that's a huge problem. Who, What news we get, what stories are told, whose stories get told matters so much. And if you don't have the right voices in the newsroom or at the editorial decision-making table, then you might not hear those stories at all. And you may never represent the people that you need to represent. And so I, I want to give law credit where credit's due there, that for as hard as we are on ourselves and for as far as we have to go, uh, we're, we're working at it. And, and I think that's something to be proud of. So moving to a different uh, area, uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on where media is going and in particular where you see niche magazines like yours fitting into that. Uh, because we hear a lot of talk about you know, newspapers struggling, magazines struggling, big ones too, like ones that we think would never fail, too big to fail, right? Right. Um, but where do you see the future of your magazine and where do you see the future of, of bigger media? Well, I think about this all the time and I'll try and have a relatively short answer to it. But I, I mean, I'm really sad about media, media in Canada, media globally. I think it's an incredibly hard time to be in publishing. And I think 
society is worse off for sort of where we're at now. I, I think it costs a lot of money to make good content. And mm -hmm. I think right now it's not really, nobody really appreciates what, what's involved or what we'll lose if we don't invest in good content. So hearing that 75 editorial jobs were lost last week at Rogers and Rogers is in charge of so many of the Canadian magazines that we, we know and love like Chatelaine and McLean's and Canadian business to, to know that they're under such threat is, is just makes me it just sad all the time. I guess I feel a little bit safer, which is maybe odd, but as a, as a niche publication in the legal community, uh, I feel like I'm in a pretty lucky position in terms of journalism right now. We're still making just as many magazines as we did when we started, and we've had the chance to expand and grow in exciting ways that respond specifically to my niche. And I feel sort of protected in a law bubble that it would be very hard, and I hope, I mean, it could happen, I suppose, but it would be very hard for someone to come from outside and try and create what I'm doing or to copy it or even see that as a good and lucrative idea. Like we've, the 11 years in the industry has allowed me to keep doing what I started off doing, but to keep building my business in other interesting and exciting ways by adding President JD, by adding the President A-list. We also now do a lot of custom content for clients. So we will uh, create stories, conduct photo shoots, put content out there in the world, usually in our magazine for them that looks and reads almost like a precedent story. And it's something I really like to do. So seeing how the businesses can grow and change is, is reassuring. And I guess the other thing that's kind of an advantage is law's a little bit slow. <laughs> and for as many times as I'm kind of annoyed or frustrated by that, it also means that lawyers aren't using the latest app first and they're not, they didn't buy all, all buy tablets so they could read Star Touch or whatever the latest thing was. And so I, I get the benefit of seeing how other bigger, better funded publications have gone out and tried things. Maybe they worked and maybe they didn't, but I didn't have to invest to find out that I don't need to make like a tablet edition of precedent, precedent JD or precedent magazine that um, it's probably not worth it. So I get to learn from other people's mistakes without having to make them myself. And lawyers are still happy to get a print magazine landing on their desk, which I'm really grateful for. Thank you, lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very grateful too. I look forward to every issue that comes out, thank Melissa, you. and uh, I'm sure many other lawyers do too. So uh, thank you very much for uh, being with us today and talking about uh, everything you've done. It's, uh, it's really remarkable. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. <laughs>